Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do the people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thank you. Thank you, Autumn. Um, yeah, keep, keep your Bibles open. It's a dense passage. There's an awful lot in there. Um, and we're going to work our way through it this morning. It would be good if you can follow as we do that. Uh, I don't know if you remember the the moment where you got your first job, uh, an exciting moment. Um, Look, I know for some of you that feels like ages ago. For some of you it is ages ago, but I'm sure you can remember. Thank you, sir. I'm sure you can remember the experience because it is exciting, isn't it? Uh, It's exciting when you realise, yeah, I've got this job. I'm going to be earning however much it is per week. I don't know what it was for you. I think for me it was about $100 a week. That was a lot of money. Like, if I think about that, that's over five grand per year. That's a great amount of money. And what if I do extra shifts? What if I work weekends? Can you imagine? How incredible. And then you get that first paycheck in your hands and it's so exciting, isn't it? Wow, imagine what I could do with all of this. It's all mine. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, It's thrilling, isn't it? There's, There's just so much potential, so much excitement. Until, until that first flush is out of the way until the, the grind of work uh, settles in. You know, the weekend comes and your friends are doing something you'd really like to be doing, but I've got to work. You start earning money and then you realise all of a sudden there's this thing called board. What's that? Like? And then tax on top of board, like, well, actually tax comes out first, doesn't it? What's that all about? You start getting paychecks, uh, you're putting them into your savings, but your savings just never add up. It just kind of mysteriously vanishes and you seem to get nowhere and works hard. What was exciting becomes boring. What hours used to pass quickly take forever. 
It becomes a grind, doesn't it? And it's not quite what you expected. You've looked forward for hours, for years, for, for, for ages really, to work and it's not really what you'd hoped it'd be. There's a similar moment in our passage, isn't there? There is the thrill of discovery, the excitement, the rush. Eureka, you know, we've got it. And then quickly a crash. Because reality sets in and it all comes sinking back down. And here's a question for you as we consider this passage. Here's a question for you. How is it that you manage your expectations around Jesus? What did you think it would be like when you put your trust in him? What did you expect your life would be like? How did you expect it would change? Or or maybe you haven't made that decision yet. What do you think it might be like if you put your faith in him? What do you think it could look like? Is it going to be excitement? Is it all about success? Do you you envision a positive trend upwards, things improving from now on? Or do you think hard work? Sacrifice, suffering even, a grind. Well, our passage today says yes. Yes. It is the best and the hardest. There is lots of good here and lots of struggle. It's an uncomfortable passage, but it's a good one too. And we're going to see why as we unpack it this morning. Uh, as we heard in the kids' talk, we start with a healing, but it's a bit of an odd healing, isn't it? It's, it's not like the ones we've had before. There's a few strange things that happen. Yes, the emphasis on spit is weird, but it also doesn't seem to be very effective, does it? There seems a problem here. Let's just, let's just read it again from verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Uh, the spitting, yeah, it's, and the touching, that seems kind of weird to us. Um, what we can best put together is it's kind of a cultural practice. It would have been kind of expected then. Like you go to the doctor, you expect the doctor to take your temperature or to check your blood pressure or to use a stethoscope. That's kind of normal. This is kind of normal for back then. What is weird though is it doesn't seem to work very well, does it? Jesus spits in this guy, he touches his eyes and he doesn't really see very well. Yes, he sees a bit. Uh, he, he, his vision is clearly quite blurry. He knows what he's looking at, but he can't see the details very well. And so Jesus touches him again. It's a second second go at this healing. And now, now Mark makes it very clear that he does see. His eyes were opened, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. Now he's fully healed. Now he's made able. And Jesus sends him off. But why? (laughs) Why something that's never happened before? Why this double healing? Why does this happen? Well, it's very clearly not a mistake, isn't it? It's not an accident. It's not as if this guy was so far gone that Jesus had to have two goes at it to make it right. No, Jesus is making a point here. And his point is, there is seeing, 
And then there is seeing. You can open your eyes, you can have open eyes and you can still not see properly. Why does Jesus make this point? Well, it illustrates what happens next. Because what happens next is really one of the great high points of the book of Mark. Uh, if you read a bit about Mark, you'll, you'll hear people talk about the structure of the book of Mark and they call it uh, a crown structure. It starts high, it dips a bit, it meets another high point, then it dips and then right at the end there's another high point. Uh, what are those high points? Well, they're times, they're times when Jesus is confessed. Uh, right at the start... Mark himself confesses Jesus. He says, Jesus is the Son of God, the King. Then no one gets it. Right at the end, Jesus is confessed again by the centurion standing at the cross. Surely this man was the Son of God. And the high point in the middle is this one right here where Peter confesses Jesus. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Don't miss the significance of this chapter. Don't miss just how great a moment this is. You know, the whole question of the story up until this point, the, the, the question that's been on everyone's lips and asked at every single story is, who is Jesus? You know, the, the, the Pharisees have said it, the people coming to have said it, the disciples themselves have said it, and now finally we get that confession. You are the Christ. Peter voices it. Peter's clearly talking on behalf of the disciples. They've, they've got it. They've come to the conclusion. You are the Christ. And Jesus confirms it. Do you see that? He doesn't deny it. He doesn't say, no, you're actually barking up the wrong tree. He says, don't talk about it. You're right, but don't talk about it just yet, at least. Why? Why, why would he silence them after they finally get to the right conclusion? Well, because it's hot stuff. This is, this is big stuff. Um, you, you've got to understand the Christ, the uh, Messiah, is the long-awaited figure that all of the Jews have been waiting for. Uh, Christ is the Greek word, Messiah is the, the Hebrew word. Both of them simply mean the anointed one. Why is that significant? Well, who is it that gets anointed? Uh, if you know your Bible, you, you might remember. Uh, Saul was anointed and then became king. David was anointed and then became king. And so it was for all of their kings. Anointed and then took the throne. And the Jews had had many kings, but now for over 400 years, they had none. They'd been ruled by others, oppressed by others, owned by others. But all through that time, all through the time of their last few kings and, and not having kings, God's been saying the same thing over and over and over again to them. He's been saying, one is coming, one is coming, an anointed one is coming. He's going to be the, the, the king you've always dreamed of. He's bigger and he's better and he's more wonderful. He's not going to stuff it up like those previous kings did. He's going to get it right. He's going to put the kingdom back together. He's going to bring freedom and salvation and rescue. He's going to bring a return to the, the, the heights of the kingdom and far beyond that. And so they'd waited and they'd waited and they'd waited 
And their expectations had grown over the years. They, they envisioned this hero, you know, William Wallace or, or Gladiator charging in on his horse, this, this great hero who's going to kick out their oppressors and fight on their behalf and liberate them and free them. That was their anointed one. That was their Messiah. That was their Christ. You can imagine the disciples' hearts racing as they, they realise they've got it right. The guy is here. And it's no wonder, Jesus says, but keep it quiet. This is dangerous stuff. Their expectations are off the charts. Which is why they react so strongly to what comes next. Look at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. (laughs) It's an astonishing turnaround, isn't it? Peter, from the very heights of confession to the very lows of being rebuked as if he was speaking on behalf of Satan. Uh, It's it's not that Peter's possessed here by Satan, that's, that's Jesus' point is, Your thinking is opposed to me. It's going in the very opposite direction. It's devilish. So get away with it. But it must have been a shock, mustn't it? You're the king. You're the anointed one. You're going to come and conquer. But suffer? And be rejected? And killed? How how is that possible? And even worse, I don't know if you noticed the word Jesus uses there, He says, it must happen. It is necessary for this to happen. Jesus isn't just saying, you know, we're going to go this way and it might be that on the way things are going to get hard and difficult and we might have to, you know, suffer for this stuff or maybe even be killed. No, Jesus says, it must happen that way. It has to happen that way. It's certain. In fact, it's integral to his work and identity. If you want to see him clearly, if you want to understand what he's about, then you have to see this. You have to see this suffering and death. Uh, Last week we were at a a party, an 80s, 90s party. Apparently that's a thing now. We've moved on past those decades enough that we can have parties about them. Uh, And at this party there was all sorts of 80s and 90s memorabilia. Uh, And one thing in particular that really took me back, and it was a magic eye book, I don't know if you had these. We had a couple in our house, the magic eye book. You know, it sat under the coffee table and gathered dust. Um, If you know the one, you'll know that on every page of the magic eye book there's a new picture or a new weird kind of colourful pattern. They're quite obscure. And if you didn't know what it was, you could pick up the book and flick through it and kind of at the end be like, this is just actually a really dud book. I don't know why anyone would keep this. It's kind of weird. But if you understood it, then you could see what it was really about. Uh, You would know that on each page you kind of unfocus or cross your eyes and what happens, well, this whole new picture jumps out at you and a magic, a a three-dimensional picture, it was incredible, like the technology back then, just out of this world. (laughs) You had to really see it. You had to look beyond what was there. And that's Jesus' point here. The, The disciples had seen, they'd caught a glimpse but they hadn't really seen exactly what was going on. They'd only seen the surface. And Jesus is saying, this is the picture behind the picture. This is what it's really about. 
Yes, the Christ, but the Christ who must suffer, the Christ who must be rejected, the Christ who must be killed. Yes, here to do all of that, to fulfil all of those expectations, to help and save and liberate, but not without a death. Not without, as we're going to see, the cross. It is a hard message and as we're going to see when we pick Mark back up later this year, it takes them a long time to kind of get this. Because it's hard, isn't it? It's not what we want. (laughs) It's not what they wanted. It's not what we want either. It's tough. You know, I think if we're really honest, we would actually prefer a Jesus without his cross. Because a Jesus without his cross promises much, but he asks a whole lot less, doesn't he? Now, a crossless Jesus, he gives us great advice. He, he's, he's a great role model, in fact. Look at the way he treats the oppressed. A crossless Jesus is very quotable. Yeah, okay, he says some things that are a bit odd every now and again, but he was a product of his time. We can take the good bits. He's quite likeable, in fact, and comfortable. You can have a crossless Jesus and still kind of do what you want, really. There's nothing too serious at stake. But a suffering, a rejected, a killed Jesus, that's different, isn't it? You know, it's the difference between you know, the protester who hands out flyers at the mall uh, and the protester who sets himself on fire for the cause. Uh, one's message, you know, you can appreciate that, but you just chuck it in the bin and ignore it. The other confronts and shocks and challenges. The Christ must suffer, must be rejected, must die. That's a message we can't just pass over, isn't it? It's a message that demands that we sit up and take notice. It's a message literally of life and death, certainly of his, maybe even of ours. I mean, after all, that's what Jesus has been saying all along, isn't it? That's what he's been talking about. He's been talking about repentance. He's been talking about forgiveness and freedom and cleansing and a new heart. And here he's gathering all that together. He's saying, if any of that's going to happen, if any of that's going to be possible and truly matter, then I must die. The only way for you to be forgiven, the only way for you to be cleansed and to have a new heart and be called a child of God, to be healed and restored and made new is to have Jesus die and accept that and believe that. Uh, You can't get it, you can't grab it, you can't make any of that sort of stuff happen on your own. The message all along has been that we are so bad, so far gone, so sinful that we can only have that done for us and even then, only through suffering and only through death. It's not a Christ come for conquest or earthly glory or even earthly triumph. It's not a Christ of before and after amazing Instagram posts. It's humility and repentance and belief. And then and only then is Jesus not just the Christ but your Christ, your Saviour, your Rescuer, your forgiveness, 
and your life. You can't have him without the cross. But at the cross, you can have him and in him, everything he has come to bring. It's a hard message, but it gets even harder because it comes even closer to home as we read on. Look with me at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, the cross isn't just the shape of Jesus' life. The cross is going to become the shape of his followers' lives too. Jesus didn't come to earth to serve himself. He came to earth to give himself up. And likewise, we're to deny ourselves. Jesus didn't come shunning suffering or trying to avoid it. He willingly bore his cross. Likewise, he calls us to take up our cross. Jesus didn't come in order to get his own way but to follow his Father's way. And likewise, he calls us to come after and follow him. Following him means accepting his way as our own. Where he goes, we go. What he does, we follow. Uh, that's, that's true following, isn't it? We associate ourselves and our fortunes with the ones that we follow, with the one that we follow. Uh, it's why I go for the eagles. Um, when I was young, I think when I was six, uh, I kind of came to that realisation that everyone in the world went to a footy team and I needed to go for a footy team. Uh, I had no idea of anything about footy and my family are not into footy and so we didn't have kind of a team that we, we had to follow. And so by the end of this year, this, this new team won. They had cool colours, they had a cool name, they were winning. I thought, that's a good team. I'll go for that team. They're a winning team, therefore I, I'm a winning person. I don't know, that association kind of makes sense. Let's succeed together. This is great. But, I mean, it, you laugh, but it's how we talk, isn't it? You know, how did your team go on the weekend? Well, we won. <laughs> did you hear that? We, we won, like I took the field, I didn't get named in the side, but we, we won? <laughs> yeah, sure. But what happens if you don't win? Oh, they lost. <laughs> they lost. Not me. They did. You know, we, we, that's how we follow, isn't it? We, we like it. We... we Highlights, great, we, we are followers then, we won. But not for the failures, they lost. I'm not a part of that anymore. We, we want to associate, we want to follow for the good. Uh, we don't want to follow for the hard and for the failure. And Jesus says, not with me. That's not how it works here. Following is absolute. It's for the highs, which are very high, the best. And it's for the lows, which are low, which are very hard. The path to holding life is in giving it up to follow him. 
You can't buy your life. You can't grab it or take hold of it. Even if you were to gain the whole world, as Jesus says, you can't ransom your soul. You can't change your eternal destination. In the end, you'll forfeit it all. The only way to go is going Jesus' way, denying yourself, taking your cross, following him. And we can't minimise that. I mean, we talk about it, don't we? We say, oh, it's my cross to bear and usually we're you know, talking about something, you know, my, my sore toe or my mother-in-law or whatever it is, some other unpleasant... You've got lovely mothers-in-law. I've got lovely mother-in-law. But, but, but that's how we talk about it, isn't it? You know, it's, it's that unpleasant circumstance in life. It's that thing that I don't really like. That's my cross to bear. That's, that's you know, that's my long-suffering. Look at my patience. That's what it's about. And that's not what it's about at all. The cross means dying to self. You know, in Jesus' day, if you said to someone, go to a cross, you're essentially saying, go to hell. It's not light. It's not easy or just an unpleasant circumstance. It's a symbol of hate and death and an end. It's not just inconvenient. It is suffering to death itself. And Jesus says, if you want life, if you want me, then deny yourself, take your cross and follow. Uh, Last century there was a a missionary by the name of Jim Elliot. You might have heard that name. Uh, He was a a young man, a youngish man, uh, a new graduate from Bible college. He had a young wife uh, and an infant child. But Jim Elliot had felt the call to go to an unreached people group in South America uh, and to bring them the name of Jesus to talk uh, about Jesus to them. Now he knew the risks, he knew there were all sorts of unknown things uh, and despite his, his own fears, despite his own desires, he felt that call uh, and he went. And after only a couple of weeks he was killed by those people. Uh, and a couple of months later his journals were found and uh, they were read And less than a week before his death, he had written this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He denied himself, he took up his cross and he followed, even to death. And in doing so, he gained something that can never be taken from him. Now what's remarkable is his widow, Elizabeth Elliot, also denied herself. Not in death, but in life. Because Elizabeth Elliot went on to also train for ministry and train for the mission field. And when it came time to choose where she wanted to go, she chose to go to that same people group who had killed her husband. And she also went and brought them the gospel of Jesus. I mean, (laughs) how easy would it have been for her to say, you know, they've had their chance. There's plenty of other unreached people groups. I can go there. How easy to say, you know, not me. Uh, Someone else can go there. There's a conflict of interest. But she too submitted her life to Jesus and denied herself and carried her cross and went. And that's Jesus' call to every single one of his followers. 
not just the unique ones, not just the ones that make it into stories and books, but to you and to me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Make him the end of your life, the goal of your life, the striving throughout your life. Not you, not yourself, but him. That's what denying yourself, that's what taking up your cross and accepting its sufferings, that's what it looks like and that's what it means. It is the end of self-absorption, of self-admiration, of self-pity, self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-seeking, self-assertion, self-centeredness, selfishness, full stop. It is the end of all of that. Deny self instead for Jesus. Still, I think, we find this really easy to get wrong. We, we miss just how, how radical and how far-reaching this call is on our lives. We hear, uh, deny yourself, and we, we fill in the blank. You know, deny yourself X. You know, deny yourself your Sunday sleep-in. Deny yourself drinking with the boys on a Saturday night. Deny yourself this, that and the other. Sure, the religious life feels a little unpleasant. It's, it's not nice to cut those things out. But that's the point, isn't it? That's, that's my cross. I'm doing what Jesus said. Well, no. <laughs> not actually what Jesus said at all, is it? Jesus said, deny yourself. Not deny yourself certain things, but deny yourself and follow me. You know, we think, okay, well, I need to deny myself. Uh, maybe I'll deny myself more at work. Uh, I don't know what that will look like. Maybe, maybe that will look like less, Jesus, uh, less work, more Jesus. That's, that's denying myself, or however we, we make that work. But actually, that's still not Jesus' point, is it? Yes, deny yourself at work, but, but not less work, more Jesus. Instead, put Jesus over everything. Jesus in every part of work. Jesus over all of your work. That's what it means to deny yourself. Uh, do you see what's happening here? That's actually far harder. This is the far more difficult path to go down. Taking things away for Jesus, that's quite easy. Yeah, okay, it hurts and we feel that sense of loss, but that's certainly the easier path. Putting Jesus over and above everything is far harder. It's far more difficult because it covers everything you do, every moment. Yes, at work it means saying no to the wrong stuff, you know, no to selfishness, no to overworking, no to to slagging off your boss, whatever it is that contradicts Jesus' way. Yes, it means putting on the right stuff. You know, not looking for your meaning in work, but in Jesus. Uh, showing grace, even if your boss is average. Being patient with your other workers. Self-sacrifice. All those sorts of things. It means that too. But it also goes further, doesn't it? Denying yourself in work, putting Jesus over your work, might even end up in all sorts of places. It might even end up with quitting your job. Maybe to find a different one. It might mean finding a different career path altogether. It might even mean something so radical as finding yourself on the mission field. Or maybe even going to ministry. It could mean all sorts of things because Jesus is in control, not you. It goes for every part of life, doesn't it? Jesus over all. In our parenting, you know, not about finding a neat family or, or having you know, the, the, the right achieving and respectable children, but, but Jesus over all, Jesus above all. 
It happens with our finances. It's not a matter of saying, you know, this money is Jesus and this money is mine. It's saying, no, I'm denying myself. Jesus is over all of my money. And our holidays, our retirement, not this time is Jesus, but this time is me time. Instead, it's all of me for Jesus always. And we could go on, couldn't we? See, our biggest mistake is we treat denying ourselves as if we were cutting a little part of ourselves out and replacing it with Jesus. But instead what Jesus is saying is, cut yourself out altogether and replace him with me. Not a self-driven life, but a Jesus-driven life. It is far harder, but it is the path of life. It is the path of following him. Yes, there is suffering on that path. Your cross to bear will be a painful one. It will cost you opportunities, it will cost you energy, it will cost you emotion, it will cost you ridicule and scorn and persecution. But it is life. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Uh, when I was in high school, we had the, had the wristbands. I, I, they were kind of a big deal. WWJD, do you remember that? I went to a Christian school, obviously. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? That's not bad. Uh, it's not bad. It's, it's a reasonable thing to have on your wrist, but it's, it's not quiet, is it? I mean, you're not Jesus. You can't do exactly what Jesus did in every particular situation. Instead, what, what we need to ask and what Jesus is telling us to ask ourselves here is, what would Jesus have me do? in this situation? How does Jesus rule this decision? How can I honour Jesus in this? Not self, 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 but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That is denying yourself. That is taking up your cross, being willing to accept the cost that is following him. Because at the end of the day, it is a cost. It is a cost and it may be a great cost but no matter how great that cost will be it is most certainly a finite cost. And what it gains us is of infinite value. What cost to give up your life and gain eternity? As one commentator wrote, the one for whom the way of Jesus is more important than his own existence will secure his eternal being. But the one whose existence is more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and his existence. The choice is before you. Your life, to live as you please, to gain all you like, to do as you want, and one one day to lose it all. Or to give away your life. To accept the crucified Jesus, to follow his cross-shaped path, to give him your life and gain in him life for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. 
Help us to see him crucified as our Christ, the one who has come to bring your promised life and hope and eternity, the one who washes our offences away and forgives us by his blood. Father, help us to see him as the one we follow, following him in all things, denying ourselves and being willing to count the cross at cost and carry our cross. Father, help us not to fear that cost, but instead be glad and willing. Lord, the, the work of denying ourselves is hard, and so we pray that you would help us to let go. Show us what we're clinging to. May your spirit open our eyes so that Jesus would be over and above everything in our life. Father, may you teach us to follow him with every fibre of our being. Jesus above all, Jesus through all, Jesus in all. In his name we pray. Amen.